Before we read the passage, let me briefly describe um, a couple of the moves that have gotten us here to this point of tension. Early in Acts, Jesus commissions his disciples to take his message to the whole world. Um, And so they do just that. And they go around performing signs and wonders and teaching about Jesus. As a result of all that, the religious authorities are, are angered. And they proceed to arrest, firstly, Peter and John, just those two, and bring them in for questioning. And Peter and John then explain themselves and how they feel compelled to continue the ministry and how they must obey God rather than mere people. And sadly, those words fall on deaf ears. The authorities can't hear them, won't hear them. And the apostles then are warned to stop what they're doing. And then they're released. They then go and find the rest of the disciples who've been gathering in a common location at the temple, a place called Solomon's Portico, and they give them the scoop on everything that's happened. And then they pray to God to give them courage to continue their ministries in spite of being warned. And they ask God to, um, to work through them, to enable them to perform various signs and wonders to keep doing that, which will serve the purpose of authenticating their word ministry among the people. And following that, we saw the outworking of all that in Acts 5, 12 to 16, as they continued to preach, and as God continued to do amazing things through them. And, and uh, let me just say that this whole thing that's going on here, I said it last week, but I want to say it again. This was a unique time in the history of the church. In many ways, an unrepeatable time in the history of the church. Right? It's an era which has come and gone, which is not to say that God can and doesn't do miraculous things in our own day. He clearly does, but he hasn't, and he isn't doing the kinds of things we see here in Acts. Not, not even close. The modern day equivalent of what we're seeing described here at Acts would be like somebody walking up and down the halls of Baton Rouge General or through the ICU at the lake and systematically healing every person in every room. That's the kind of thing that's going on here in Acts. And it's for a specific reason and a unique purpose of authorizing and authenticating the apostles as the successors and continuers of Jesus' ministry, as guys to be listened to. At any rate, that's the sequence of events thus far, and the religious authorities, now angrier than ever, that their warnings have been ignored to come back with a counterpunch of their own. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles, and they put them in the public prison. Now again, in the previous arrest, it was only Peter and John that were involved. This time around, it's, it's the whole lot of them. It's the entire apostolic crew that have been rounded up and thrown in jail. And they're very, uh, there were several strong emotions wrapped up in this arrest. I mean, the passage says, first of all, that, that the Sadducees are these extremely devoted Jewish leaders. They were jealous. They're jealous of the authority and the popularity and the success of the apostles' ministry amongst the people. Additionally, the apostles' actions were in defiance of them. They were being done in defiance of this gag order that they had issued after the first arrest... As one writer puts it, the apostles' actions in modern terminology would be regarded simply as contempt of court. 
And so their behavior aroused great frustration as the authorities see their instructions being completely ignored. And finally, some scholars have suggested that the Sadducees were motivated by other factors as well, including having the concern to, to maintain the status quo with the Roman leaders, who had historically allowed them some freedoms as long as they towed a certain line. The Sadducees, seeing the enthusiastic response of the people to the apostles' ministry, uh, they were fearful of all, that all this would start attracting too much attention to itself and maybe bring the Roman hammer down upon them, so to speak, and ruin their little gig. So in addition to their jealousy and their frustration over having their warnings ignored, it seems that the Sadducees also had a vested personal interest in putting the apostles in lockdown mode, literally, to maintain the status quo. However, despite the Sadducees' best efforts to squash the apostles' ministry, the next section of Acts 5 makes it clear that God had other plans for his apostles. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought, the the apostles brought out. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to, and someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Uh, I mean, does God have a sense of humor or what? I mean, at the very moment that the authorities are going to get the apostles out of prison to tell them to stop preaching and healing. They're already in the temple, the most public place of all, doing that very thing. And the authorities are clueless about the whole thing. So in response to their attempts at silencing the apostles, God himself steps in and delivers them, instructing them to just keep right on doing what they're doing. And it's worth noting, I think, the way their preaching task is described here. They're instructed to go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I think that's the only place that that description appears in the New Testament. I I love that description. All the words of this life. Because it's simple, but it is a rich description of the apostles' message. Because it wasn't just theological information they're passing on. Right? They're telling people about an entirely new and different way of life. They're calling people to new life in Christ, to life with God and life with the people of God. I mean, that, that's a whole sermon, just that verse, but not for now. Uh, you'll be glad to hear me say that. Uh, at any rate, they are delivered from the prison, immediately return to their ministries, and are promptly arrested again. But it's at best kind of a soft arrest. Uh, The authorities are bewildered and they're embarrassed at what has happened and they sort of politely suggest that the apostles accompany them back to the station, so to speak. And as we saw last week and as the passage indicates in taking this approach, they're showing their continued concern to not upset the crowds because 
these same crowds have seen what's going on. They've had friends and family healed by these apostles. Now, there are a couple of things to notice at this point in the story. Uh, for one thing, can we just take a moment to marvel at the incredible obtuseness of the religious authorities in Jerusalem? Here's this group of guys, super religious guys, guys who are convinced that they are defending the cause, that they are the guardians of the truth, and they are the spokesmen for God. And so in the name of all that, they take these apostles and throw them in jail, believing they're doing God a huge favor, except for the small problem that the God from whom they think they're working has now completely overturned and opposed everything they did. And yet... And yet, even though the apostles are miraculously, inexplicably delivered from a guarded prison, you hear the echo there, the guarded prison, it does not seem to upset any of their assumptions about themselves or the role they're convinced they're playing on God's behalf. I mean, the obtuseness here is epic. Which illustrates, I think, at least one thing. And we've seen this before. I'm going to repeat it anyway. That's the kind of guy I am. Uh, no one, no one has ever come to faith as a result of mere evidence. And no one ever will. You cannot ask for a situation any clearer than this. The people you regard as enemies of God are delivered from prison by the very person they are the alleged enemies of. And still the authorities don't budge. They don't conclude, wow, so we were like way wrong about these guys. We should maybe apologize to them and pay attention to what they're saying. That's not happening. Why doesn't it happen? Because faith and coming to faith is always a result of the sovereign invasion of a person's heart by the Spirit of God. To open eyes that are blind and ears that are deaf. Can God use evidence and tangible proof? Certainly he can. But those same proofs and evidence all by themselves will not cause a person to bow the knee in submission to God. Only the Spirit can do that. No one has ever been converted because they suddenly in their own power figured it all out and put it all together. Not without the work of God. And that's why this miraculous deliverance from the prison just goes right past these religious authorities. It just sails right past them. What might seem obvious and crystal clear to you and me was nothing of the sort. What does that mean for you and me? Does it mean that we don't try and answer people's sincere questions about God? Of course not. Give it your best shot. Does it mean we don't appeal to people's understanding? Absolutely not. We make every effort to do that. Paul did that. Talks about him reasoning in the temple. But what it does mean is this. As we do these things, as we pray with all and, and, and say things and do things to draw people to God, hopefully see that God uses that to draw them, we're praying with all our might that God would be pleased to use these things that we do and say. And it means that when people do respond, we see it for the miracle it is, and we know exactly where the praise and the credit belongs. The other thing I want you to see here is that God's deliverance of the apostles is timely, purposeful, situational, strategic, all kinds of words. But guess what? It is not 
It is not formulaic. In just two short chapters, we're going to encounter another situation involving one of God's beloved servants, Stephen, in which God will not provide any means of escape or relief or deliverance. Indeed, some of the very people who are delivered on this occasion in Acts 5, like the Apostle James, for example, will not be delivered on a future occasion. And the Apostle Paul, who will come into the picture later on in Acts, and will be used mightily by God, and was delivered on any number of occasions from various threats, he will eventually find himself in a Roman prison from which he will never be delivered until he dies. And this begs the question, what is going on? Why the deliverance on one occasion and the non-deliverance on another? Why the unevenness of the whole thing? When you start digging around for answers, you quickly discover that you cannot look for the explanation for God's deliverance on one occasion and his non-deliverance on another. Uh, you can't look for that sort of, uh, for that, uh, any sort of compelling intrinsic reasons for these things. In other words, it wasn't because of something that God saw within these apostles that resulted in his stepping in and delivering them. It wasn't because they possessed a certain discrete quantity of faith that so impressed God that he just had to move on their behalf. On the contrary, the compelling reasons for what happened were not to be found inside the apostles but ultimately inside of God and had everything to do with God's plans and purposes. Clearly, it suited God's purposes better for the apostles early on to be released. At the same time, just as clearly it seems, it did not suit God's purposes for this to always be the case. And that's vitally important to remember. It's important for the people, uh, God's people then, and it, it is important for God's people in every age. Because you see, if, if God's people back in the day, in this story, if they'd had a theology of blessing that so many seem to have today. If they had a theology that assumed that all of God's plans and purposes revolved around them, then perhaps they would have had grounds later on when things didn't work out for being angry or disappointed with God. But the fact is, these apostles didn't have a theology that placed themselves at the center, that treated God as the great butler in the sky, whose only waking thought is how he can bless you today. To put it another way, the apostles didn't have a person-centered doctrine of God. They had a God-centered doctrine of God. But does the fact that God is God-centered mean he doesn't care about us? Does it mean he's not concerned about what it's like for his creatures? Or care about their suffering? Absolutely not. I mean, he, he was here. He came here in the flesh. He, he put this stuff on. He's mindful that we are but dust, as the scriptures say. He pities his children, as the Psalms tell us. God is concerned for us. But, and here's the key. Please hear me on this. His plans always have in view a better version of us than we can see. 
or that we even want. And the gap between what we can see and imagine and what he knows and is bringing about, that gap is so often, I think, the difference between what is good for us and what feels good to us. And we confuse those things all the time. He has in view a better version of you than you could possibly imagine. That means he's going to handle you in ways you won't get. So the apostles have a person-centered doctrine. They don't don't have a person-centered doctrine of God. They have a God-centered doctrine of God, which makes all the difference in the world. Because when we put anything else in the center, anything other than God, the whole thing goes out of whack. It's like a wheel or a tire that's not balanced. It's off-center. You take it out on the road, you get it up to speed, and it will wobble and wear in all the wrong places, and eventually it will completely disintegrate. The only thing that works right is having God at the center. Everything else implodes, explodes, falls apart. And the apostles on this occasion, yes, they're gloriously delivered, and it's wonderful, but they didn't take that fact and come to the wrong conclusions about God's plans. And about what it means to be blessed by God. They were thankful to be delivered. But later on, when God deemed otherwise, they still sang praises to him. So returning to the passage, the apostles are in prison a second time. They're released from prison miraculously by God, only then to be discovered back in the temple doing what I told them to do. And they bring him in for a third round of questioning. And when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Side note, Jesus is called leader here. I think it's the only place in the New Testament that it happens And interestingly, it's in the context of suffering self-sacrifice. That's a whole other sermon. It drives me nuts. There's all kinds of sermons in there. We're not going to say any of them. So the religious authorities bring the apostles in and proceed to challenge them. And the statements they make only highlight the success of the apostles' ministry. First of all, they say that they filled Jerusalem with their teaching. I mean, it must have killed them to admit that. But they did. Secondly, the comment, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, points to the same thing, doesn't it? Because the message of Jesus is out there. It's on the street. And in a short space of time, a very short space of time, thousands of people have responded to this message. And as more and more people respond to the gospel, and they're more, the more concerned these authorities would be that they are the ones that send Jesus to the cross. And Jesus' blood is on their hands. And now they're starting to worry that that might come back on them one day and result in further bloodshed, namely their own. And so out of embarrassment, anger, and just plain fear, 
they issue indictments against the authorities. And as he did previously, Peter, Peter boldly responds to these authorities. Right? And think about that, right? But can I just remind you, this is the same Peter who, when questioned by a little girl not very long before this, denied Jesus not once but three times. And he went running away with his tail between his legs. And, and now what is he doing? I mean, he's getting in the face of these religious authorities. He's not backing down at all. He's clearly a changed man. And he responds to his accusers, echoing Acts 4, 19 to 20, and admitting, yes, they did ignore the warnings they were given. But they did so because they had to obey God rather than men. So he's a, he's a changed man. And, but more than that, we see God's provision, giving his people the words when they most need them which God is still in the business of doing. So believe that and trust that. Well, after these opening remarks about obeying God rather than man, Peter proceeds to, to take advantage of this golden opportunity, starts preaching to the authorities right then and there. And uh, he makes it clear that Jesus came to bring about forgiveness of sins. And so there is a gospel offer in what he says. As one writer notes, they might have responded at that point by confessing their role in the denial of the Messiah, accepting the testimony of those who were witnesses of his resurrection and ascension. It's clearly an opportunity is presented to them. But again, these leaders can't and they won't hear it. Instead, they only hear him saying things they regard as ridiculous and blasphemous. Um, they hear him saying that the God of all their ancestors is the very one that raised from the dead this Jesus that they had murdered. They hear him saying, you've betrayed your own heritage. You've opposed God himself. Further, they hear him saying that the one they destroyed and threw on the trash heap is now sitting at the place of highest honor, at the right hand of God the Father. And finally, they hear him saying that there, that is the apostle's possession of the Spirit and his gifts, was evidence of their being in step with God, and by implication, the religious authorities' lack of those same gifts was corresponding proof of their disobedience. So he says a lot here. Uh, he does not hold back at all, and they, they are furious about it. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
Now, from one perspective, it's an amazing and providential speech from an unbeliever, mind you. Uh, And I think it's a further example of God's provision for his apostles from a very unlikely source. But before we start handing out prizes to Gamaliel for his wisdom, there's a couple of observations that should be made about what he didn't say. Um, As Peterson has noted, Gamaliel's advice seems tolerant and appealing because it hinders further aggressive action against the apostles. However, Gamaliel never suggests any examination of the truthfulness or otherwise of Peter's claims. Even further, Gamaliel doesn't comment on the miraculous healings going on in the city, nor does he mention people being delivered from demon possessions. None of that comes up. So what he says is helpful in a limited sort of way, but for all of his wisdom, there is an amazing amount of blindness still in evidence. All that being said, though, There is a very important truth spoken by Gamaliel whose words will prove to be more profound than he could possibly have known. The core of it is right there in verses 38-39. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. What year is it? 2015. 2015 what? AD. Anno Domini. The year of our Lord. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Almost 2,000 years later, those prophetic words still ring true. One commentator had this to say. The devil has never given up the attempts to destroy the church by force. Under Nero, 54 to 68 AD, Christians were imprisoned and horrifically executed, including probably Paul and Peter. Domitian, 81 to 96 AD, oppressed Christians who refused to pay him the divine honors he demanded. Under him, John was sent to the island of Patmos. Marcus Aurelius, 161 to 180 AD, believed that Christianity was dangerous and immoral, turned a blind eye to several large outbreaks of mob violence against Christians. Then in the third century, what had so far been sporadic became systematic, and under Decius, 249 to 251, thousands died, including Fabian, the bishop of Rome, for refusing to sacrifice in the imperial name. The last persecuting emperor before the conversion of Constantine was Diocletian, 284 to 305. He issued four edicts which were intended to stamp out Christianity altogether. He ordered churches to be burned, scriptures to be confiscated, clergy to be tortured and killed, and Christian civil servants to be deprived of their citizenship and, if unrepented, executed. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. Through Gamaliel, God hands the church on a silver platter. Through this unbeliever, he hands it on a silver platter, what continues to be one of the strongest defenses of Christianity. That is the unlikely, surprising survival, and not just survival, but continued expansion of the church in spite of frequent and ongoing and pervasive, brutal efforts to destroy it. I mean, think about it. Here you have a second occasion. 
very early in the, the church, a second occasion when the enemies of, the, uh, of, of God have a chance, humanly speaking, to kill this whole thing. And they can't pull it off. In its earliest stages. Right? After Jesus' death. You recall this? After Jesus' death, they placed his body in the tomb. They posted Roman soldiers there. Why? Because they knew all they had to do was prevent one dead body from being stolen. And all this nonsense about Jesus rising from the dead would just go away. Well, what happened? They couldn't pull it off. Why? Because to use Gamaliel's words, it was of God. It could not be stopped. God raised Jesus from the dead. They could have posted a million soldiers there. It would not have mattered a bit. And now for a second time, there's a chance to put an end to this whole thing. They've got all the apostles in their clutches. All the key players are here. An opportunity to crush the whole thing. What happens? They can't pull it off. Because it's of God. The authorities put him in prison. God says, not going to happen. There you go. And they're back out in the temple preaching their guts out. And now they brought him back and they warn him again. And they turn the heat up a bit this time. They beat them. This is the finger. This is the this is the touch. This is the downward turn starting to take place. These beatings were no soft option. People had been known to die from these beatings ordered by the Sanhedrin. It was intended as a serious and very painful lesson. Maybe it seems a little surprising then, given their concern not to get the crowds upset over the treatment of the apostles, but I think what it illustrates is the level of their anger and their rage at Peter's defiant speech and his clear intention to continue to ignore their warnings. And so even though they're concerned about the crowds uh, and they can't just do what they really like to do, they're still so angry. They want to send some signal that there's more where that came from. So they beat them mercilessly. And what was the effect? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple... And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They didn't miss a beat. They kept going. They walked away, maybe bloody, beaten, some of them probably limping, bruised, but with tears in their eyes, joy in their heart, and they go right back to what they were doing before. If this thing is of God, if this thing is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. Well, it is. And they didn't. And they never will. And our Lord will come. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that 
you love your church. We thank you that you do have these grand plans and purposes, but not as a disinterested party, but as a father who loves his children and who sees more for them than they could ever see for themselves. Thank you, Father, that you are working those purposes out in a world that um, rejects them. And that even that is serving your greater glory. Help us to trust you in that. Help us to live as those who believe these truths. Help us to speak as those who believe these truths. Give us the courage of Peter to speak boldly of you um, especially in those times when everything around us says be quiet don't say anything Uh, we pray Father for Christians right now um, all over the world who are in that place and who are having to decide to obey you rather than people or governments and they are speaking and they are paying a terrible price we pray Father they would know the same joy that the apostles knew and that they would have that sure hope in their heart and that we thank you that we will have the privilege of knowing and meeting them one day give us that same courage if and when we are called to that. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. We're now going to take up an offering for those that want to support the work of this church or uh, any number of ministries that we do support, which are cycling each week through the monitor in the lobby if you want to see who it is that we support. So um, if you're visiting, we don't ask you to to give. If you want to, that's your decision. But uh, we're glad that you're here with us this morning.